Today, we usher in the first of our weekend editions, our bonus episodes of Raw Observations because you demanded it and we had to launch it with an incredible episode detailing a really controversial uh, period where two mega comic creators went at it in the court of law. The lawsuit of Neil Gaiman versus Todd McFarlane. It involves Spawn, Medieval Spawn, Angela, later on the character of Miracle Man, and Marvel Comics even comes in to, to join to join the episode as this thing draws out. I am reading to you from a book called The World versus Todd McFarlane, written by Daniel Best. We kick it all off in part one of Neil Gaiman versus Todd McFarlane, starting right now. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Rob's Observations. I am your host, Rob Liefeld. We talk comic books, superheroes, their enormous impact on pop culture, and, and we do that each and every episode, giving you some of the history behind the formation of comic books, comic book characters, the rise and influence of comic book creators, and, of course, the results of the works of these creators and these publishers who make these incredible characters that bring them to our cineplexes and to our streaming platforms and to our video games and to our trading cards and our toys. I, I always uh, draw draw attention to the fact that when I was seven years old, I was bit by the comic book bug big time. Vivid, vivid memories of buying those issues of, of, of Fantastic Four, of the Justice League, of, of X-Men, of, of, uh, of, of Avengers. I, I, I was there as... We were entering a new age of comic books, and so much what was occurring, I, I didn't really know at the time. I wasn't really aware that I was really at the infancy of of, of Marvel Comics. They would they were only barely ten years old at the time uh, that I started buying their comics, and there was so much, you know, a decade's worth of stories that I desperately wanted to to fill in those gaps but now as we look back and we see the 60th anniversary of the avengers and the 60th anniversary of the x-men that that's this period we're, we're in that year right now you sit there and you go man I, I was you know basically coming in around year 10 73 74 really when all this stuff was going on and had no idea that i really was at the birth of so much that was yet to come i was the birth of wolverine of punisher Later, responsible for characters myself as Deadpool, as Cable, Domino. I, I, I my, my peers uh, gave, gave you characters like Venom, and 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 so just watching from that period in 1974 to what comic books has become is really the joy of what we discuss here on the show. And and today we are going to bring you a giant event that rocked the comic books industry. The the, the seeds of this are planted in the 90s, are planted in the very early 90s within the first year of the launch of Image Comics, a comic book that I helped launch, helped create, design the logo, name the company. I was the launch book. I was the first book out of the gates for Image Comics. The first two issues of Youngwood were the first two comics to arrive from Image Comics, later followed by Spawn, then Dragon, then Wildcats, and all of it. That year of 1992 was a tremendously transformative, uh, transformative year. And, and it really changed comics forever. Uh, well, I, I, I can mark in the same way that I was there as comic books were, were, were entering a new age in 1973, 1974. I can also tell you that I was there as we changed comic books ourselves. Now, today's story starting in the 90s 
involves one Todd McFarlane and one extremely popular writer, novelist, Neil Gaiman. Neil Gaiman. You, you, you tell me. I've heard it both ways. I'm going to try and uh, try and call him. I'll, I'll call him Neil Gaiman for the remainder of this uh, this, this this show today, and maybe an extra episode because I, I have a feeling this one is going to be jam packed. But in the early 2000s, a dispute between Todd and Neil turned into a very uh, very controversial, uh, just because it was the two 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 big names in in, in comic books. Uh, in in a courtroom, Neil sued Todd McFarlane, and uh, and the fallout was nothing shy of of terrible, uh, with with Neil prevailing and winning, but uh, the the road to getting there is chronicled in a book that I'm going to refer to uh, many times over during this 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 uh, podcast. It is written by. Daniel Best. It is called The World versus Todd McFarlane. Daniel Best researched the shit out of this. I bought this book in 2019, ordered, ordered, ordered it early 2020. It was right when the pandemic was starting. And I had seen some promotions for it. And I couldn't believe all of the details that Daniel Best was able to collect about this matter. Todd McFarlane versus Neil Gaiman. And it was about it that this thing covers creator ownership, creator uh wages, money, authorship, rights, and it even, by the end of this, pulls Marvel into the entire fray. And it is uh, is gripping. It is uh, page-turner. Daniel was able to get court court transcripts. Something that you may or may not know is if you pay a a fee, you you can obtain public records. And and Daniel uh, did his research, obtained those public records. So much of what I'm going to share to you is either from Todd's words, Neil Ga- Neil's words from the lawsuit or interviews they gave prior to or post. And so much of it is going to be either judgments or l- literally, you know, written decisions and court reporting from this show, from the, the fr- fr- from this, <laughs> it, it was a show from this trial, from the actual court documents. I have shied away from doing this show for many years. I, I got this book in my possession before I launched the show. I've referred to it a couple times prior to this book for, for, for uh, on, on different episodes, but I've never gone into the meat of this book the way that I'm going to now go into the meat of this book. The World versus Todd McFarlane details Todd's two big lawsuits. One was against Tony Twist, a hockey player. That also went to- terribly for Todd, but this Neil, Gaim- Neil Gaiman one is uh, is significant given that it was two giant figures in the comics industry, and one of them called the other one out in, in terms of being dishonest, and then would go to great lengths to prove that in court. And so, the World versus Todd McFarlane is the book that I am going to be sharing with you. I was there. Uh, a little background on I was there. We were all there, the image founders at the time, when Todd was thrilled to announce that while he believed we were engaging in crass gimmickry, gimmickry of foil covers, of holograms, of embossed uh, printing, of glow-in-the-dark ink, that he would find a a more organic gimmick, and you'll you'll see he quotes. There's a quote from him in an interview uh, from from Neil himself 
when Todd approached him. So you'll get Todd's opinion on what we were doing from Neil's perspective, from Neil's recollection, based on on, on a conversation they had. Some of this, again, is from very specific witness testimony. I'm going to say this three times in the last two minutes. Daniel Best did his research. And this book is a page turner. It is gripping. Again, sometimes he will show you the actual uh, uh, court transcripts. He'll give you the the shot of what he is reading from, and uh, and he'll always footnote and categorize what it is. I mean, uh, what we say about the shows that we bring the receipts. This book brings so many of the receipts. I hope Daniel has extra copies of this. He's going to need them. One time I mentioned his book prior and he went on Facebook and said, Rob has, uh, by mentioning my book, I've, I've sold on his podcast. I was suddenly inundated with orders. Let me, let me tell you something about Daniel West. I don't, I don't know him. We are in a shared group that celebrates the bronze age of comics and I know that he loves, loved, was adored an artist named Norm Breifogel, who passed away years ago, a very famous uh, Batman artist, also uh, did Prime. But Daniel uh, is not a big fan of mine. I don't think he's a fan of any of the image guys. He takes some pot shots. He, 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 he um, does not speak of us in the best of terms throughout this book, but we are not the target. He, he veers off into mentions of us. And uh, I, 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 when I read Daniel's recollections of me, myself, in this book, it is very stereotypical what people were saying about me at that time. And he reflects that even, even without uh, knowledge of such inner workings. I know that he's announced on his Facebook page uh, that he is trying to, to come up with a kind of rise of Image Comics story and trying to talk to different principals and, and talk to different people and, and again get get down and 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 uh and dirty with his research of which that's going to take a little more prying because there have been people who have not been honest about the formation of image comics since its inception so i do wish you luck with that but I'm, i i need to, to just tell you right now this 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 author is no tr- like big fan of rob liefeld but what he what he did was find a subject matter in this this period of lawsuits with Todd and he did his research and I'm going to share some of that with you today because this was a big moment daily daily I would read about this I would again flip my computer on my laptop uh this is a period of my life and and again the guy has been there for so much my, my good buddy Marat Michaels was living again again once uh living once again in Southern California during this period and anytime from 11 to 3 on any given weekday I would be at Starbucks with my frappuccino my coffee drink uh, and I'd have my laptop and my drawing board I would ink pages I would ink uh, Deadpool pages Deadpool core uh, image United draw young blood pages any anything that I was working working on during that time I would pencil in public in in the brilliant lounge chairs uh, that were available to us at Starbucks Marat would often join me we'd hang out and in the during the breaks we'd pop open the laptop and this particular period during this lawsuit, I mean, obviously I I was gripped. I was gripped every day. Uh, Different sites like The Beat and Bleeding Cool and Newsarama and CBR would all breathlessly report on the events of that day uh, in court. And and, and literally that year or years between Todd's Tony Twist lawsuit and then the Neil Gaiman lawsuit, it just... It seemed like there was a couple of lost years there with Todd uh, fighting these lawsuits. So again, p- 
pushed off doing this for as long as they can. The the important the impact that it has on comic books history and just the knowledge of what went down and how one creator felt so wronged by another is something that we're going to cover today on 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 this edition of Raw Observations again. There in the 1990s when Todd informed us, I'm not doing your gimmicks. I'm doing organic gimmicks. I'm going to go talk to these writers. I'm going to get great writers. I'm going to get Alan Moore. I'm going to get Neil Gaiman. I'm going to get Frank Miller. I'm going to get Dave Sim of Cerebus fame. And he did. And that was his big thing. These four you know, celebrated writers, critically acclaimed writers are going to come and, and write these incredible stories for Spawn. And and his results were tr- were tremendous. They were great. Uh, it would ultimately come back and it's, it's ironic that he has a character called haunt it would ultimately come back to haunt him this particular decision and 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 i am going to say a little less now as i turn to reading an excerpt reading the introduction the forward and then the introduction to this book the world versus todd mcfarlane so that we can get we can get going and get this ball rolling the actual forward to the book the world versus todd mcfarlane is written by Someone named, and, and, and here's the deal, I'm going I'm to butcher this name, and I, I'm going to try not to, but I, I believe I'm going to butcher this name, and have having a name that has been butchered countless times, I apologize in advance. The, the, the foreword is by Padreg O. Mieloid, okay? Padreg O. Mieloid, it's P-A-D-R-A-I-G-O-M-E-A-L-O-I-D. It says, Padraig Mieloid is the author of Poisoned Chalice. Poisoned Chalice, the extremely long and incredibly complex story of Marvel Man and Miracle Man. They make mention of this in the uh, in the foreword, so you should know ahead of time. Uh, you know, again, I wanted to let you know the name. It's brief. Uh, it's, it's to the point. And then after this, I'm going to read you Daniel Best's own uh, intro. But this says, uh, in this book, Daniel Best holds up for our scrutiny. Again, this is Padraig O. Mieloid. And again, apologies. Uh, again, I, I know what it feels like to have your name butchered. I, do, I, I don't know you. I haven't heard your name pronounced. So here we go. Forward. In this book, Daniel Best holds up for our scrutiny the inner workings, the gory guts, if you will, of Todd McFarlane's numerous legal clashes. And those gory guts are glorious indeed. I'm not completely sure how long I've known Daniel. But I know how we first got in touch. I had seriously started to write my own recent book, Poison Chalice, about Marvel Man and Miracle Man, albeit very slowly back in 2010. As it got closer to the present time, I was relying more and more on the internet and on Google to, to uh, help me out with research. Sometime in or before March 2012, I must have put in the right combination of words that brought me to one of his posts on the legal shenanigans relating to Neil Gaiman and Todd McFarlane, because I linked to a post on his 20th Century Danny Boy blog on the 19th of March, which was followed by an exchange of emails between us and uh, between us the following day, beginning a correspondence and a friendship that has continued to this day. One of the reasons I linked to his work back then and am delighted to be able to write this introduction now is because it's so good. Really, Daniel's work is, as far as I'm concerned, the gold standard in how to do your research. I have learned a lot from his research, things... I'd never have found out on my own, and it's certainly the case that my own work would be lesser without having his work to build upon. I hope that I am not being presumptuous in saying that this book and my own book are essentially companion volumes to one another. Certainly, we have both become fascinated with certain and specific aspects of much bigger pictures and have both chosen to take our own paths and plow our own furrows.
and have hopefully both added a little light to a complex and, for us, a fascinating, still ongoing situation. Where Daniel succeeds and I did not is in being kind about McFarlane and his actions. But he's right and I'm wrong. The older I get, the more I believe in redemption and giving even the worst of us another chance. It is obvious that he has no intention of standing in judgment on his subject in the very best legal way. He's found the evidence and presented it in an important manner. Make up your own mind. But first, read the book, Padreg o Meliod. And I'm telling you right now, I am going to go online and, and, and I'm going to order the Poison Chalice, the extremely long and incredibly complex story of Marvel Man and Miracle Man. So the implication here is, especially I guess if I get Poison Chalice, is that he is much less harsher towards Todd. Again, that this is the, the, the one kind of really... Ins- where, where, where the the the, uh, the opinion is inserted in this forward is uh, where Daniel succeeds and I did not is in being kind about McFarlane as his, and his actions. The older I get, the more I believe in redemption and giving even the worst of us another chance. That's pretty brutal. I'm going to look into that at a, at a very, at, 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 you know, at another time. Yes, uh, Daniel Best has a blog and you should fire it up after this. Uh, his blog is, uh, again, because I've also read it, the, the 20th Century Danny Boy. And I think that's where I first learned of this book, going back now, right, right, pre-pandemic, and then pulled the trigger in the pandemic, because, I mean, come on, weren't we all reading a whole lot more than we're reading now during the pandemic? And again, this book fell to me. So now I'm going to read you Daniel's introduction. It is also fairly brief. Uh, 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 there will be pauses as I turn pages. On this book, uh, again, apologies in advance. Daniel's, uh, I think the introduction is important because it sets the tone. I'm not going to certainly read this book out loud to you. I've already gone through and uh, eliminated entire chapters, and, and I've highlighted paragraphs and conversations that are going to help build the, 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 the broad sense of what we're talking about here. Uh, <clears throat> even, even now, I'll just give you, I'll, I'll give you glimpses of this introduction. He says... Uh, when it comes to dividing an entire industry, there's one artist who stands above all others, Todd Dean Mark McFarlane. That is Todd's full name, Todd Dean Mark McFarlane. Uh, there are those who consider Todd McFarlane to be the most exciting heiress to emerge from the post-Watchman era. Equally, there are those who consider McFarlane to be the single most destructive force for the same period. Depending on who you talk to, McFarlane revolutionized an industry. He modernized the field of his art and single-handedly dragged the industry into a new age. He became a rich comic creator and instead of just talking about the injustices of work for hire, left Marvel Comics at the height of his popularity to spearhead the formation of Image Comics where he has remained to this day. On the other hand, Todd McFarlane is the worst thing to happen to comics since Frederick Wortham. His art was all flash and no substance. His poses unrealistic. He spawned what seemed to be an endless number of imitators, most of whom didn't have an ounce of his own abilities. He stole characters away from the likes of Neil Gaiman, a capital offense for many. He's brash, opinionated, abrasive, and often abusive. In short, he's a prick. Plus, he can't write to save his life. Uh, when it comes to Todd McFarlane, there are a few things that are well worth remembering. Yes, he became insanely rich, and he did manage to spread that wealth around when it suited him. Uh, McFarlane appears to love his fans and will go out of his way to accommodate them at conventions, often sitting for hours on end, signing items and answering questions. Um, turning the page and wrapping up this introduction 
It says, uh, it, it'll be hard to find anyone interested in comic books and their history who hasn't heard of Todd McFarlane's legal woes, but very few outside of McFarlane's immediate circle know just how many legal fights he was facing as the 1990s came to a close. Virtually all of Todd McFarlane's court cases came down to three decisions made by Todd alone. The first was to, to name a mobster in his Spawn comic after a hockey player. Tony Twist. The second was to hire Neil Gaiman to write a single issue of Spawn. The third came when he decided to buy all the remaining assets from Eclipse Comics at their bankruptcy sale. Everything, as you'll see, always comes back to one of those three core choices. His bankruptcy his bankruptcy came because of the Tony Twist trial. Neil Gaiman taking him to court for ownership and payment of work comes down to McFarlane hiring, hiring him to write Spawn number nine. His losing of the Miracle Man brand would have never happened if he hadn't thought that he even had possession of it in the first place. Never mind the many instances of broken promises and lies, none of it would have happened but for three core choices. The Tony Twist trial was the beginning of a long period of uncertainty for Todd McFarlane and very, near brought, very, ne very nearly brought down the empire that he'd worked so hard to build. At his worst point, McFarlane was fighting to save his companies, to keep his characters, and to simply survive. He was facing battles from several fronts, from people he did not previously personally know in the form of Tony Twist, to those whom he had collaborated with in the form of Neil Gaiman, and also in bankruptcy courts. Clearly, the fight that cost him the most in purely financial terms was that brought against him by Tony Twist. It would take years and millions of dollars to finally resolve. But the fight that potentially hurt him the most, both personally and professionally, was the one brought against him by Neil Gaiman, as it gave the impression that McFarlane had appropriated characters from Neil Gaiman without proper accounting, permission, or payments. This, to the comic book industry at large, appeared to show McFarlane as being no better than the corporations that he'd spent years rallying against Marvel and DC Comics. It would take the better part of two decades before McFarlane would emerge free and clear from these fights. He came out of it battered, bruised, and facing charge of hypocrisy, and a serious hit to his reputation. From those observing from the outside, McFarlane sailed through these years with a breeze. He rarely exhibited any public display of discomfort about the money, many court cases, but it was far from smooth sailing for Todd McFarlane. The book will show the extent of McFarlane's legal woes while both confirming and debunking many myths and stories that have sprung up since Todd, Tony Twist first decided to sue McFarlane. Not only will you read about Todd McFarlane, but you'll also read about the others connected with McFarlane, including Eclipse Comics, Tony Twist, Neil Gaiman, Image Comics, Marvel Comics, and many more. That is the end of the introduction from uh, from from Daniel Daniel Best, and it sets the path of what we're going to explore. Again, we are using court documents. I will cite an opinion when it is cited as an opinion. I will cite a quote when it is, it is cited as a quote. Uh, many of you may be hearing about this for the first time, or you weren't gripped. Uh, there were Image Comics employees who were on site every day. Uh, accompanying Todd to this trial. Uh, th there, th th this gripped Image Comics uh, as an entity because, what, again, the, the, the hit that it was taking at the time in the early 2000s. When I'll get, I got to be honest, at the time, and you're going to see eventually, Marvel was much more aggressive. Marvel, uh, headed by Bill Jemis and Joe Quesada, wanted to aggressively point out others' flaws and, 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 and show that Marvel was a good guy and not a bad guy. And this trial did not... Uh, did, did not help Image Comics in the reversal of the position that, as this, you know, asserts in in this in this intro, that that Image was not as creator friendly as maybe their entire uh, mo had suggested. So, a lot of groundwork to lay, and we've laid it, and we are going to now kind of enter into 
behind the scenes what happened when Todd McFarlane first contacted Neil Gaiman to go forward with this in the first place and what set this entire lawsuit in motion. And and before we go any further into actually discussing Neil Gaiman versus Todd McFarlane uh, and, and the contents uh, of which is the introduction of Angela in Spawn 9, let me tell you, I have Spawn 9 in my hands right now. I, I, I have the legitimate minty juicy copy. Uh, we would give each other multiple copies. I have Spawn 1s, 2s, 3s, because we would, at Image Comics in the early days, we would send each other, you know, 50 copies of each, you know, so. Spawn 9 is my favorite Image Comic that Todd McFarlane ever produced. It's by far and away the best issue of Spawn. Uh, he knew what he had. I think Todd knew that this was crack that this was the most banging uh, Spawn story that he would receive from any of these four guys. For the record, I, I never liked the Alan Moore issue. I thought it, I think it's boring and kind of doesn't really say a lot, do a lot, go going go in, in places that interested me. I, I shrugged. It was Alan. It was nice. Uh, the Frank Miller one I, is even more, I think, disjointed. I, I, I dare say phoned in, but I don't think Frank was that interested. I think that's peak Frank's interest in that world. I think all of Frank's Batman Spawn and Spawn Batman stories are, are equally just kind of not engaging. Uh, I think he did it again for whatever reasons he decided to do it. But uh, the two standouts of this writer experiment are the Dave Sim issue of Cerebus fame. It is a brilliant, uh, just just brilliant issue uh, with, with really sharp commentary and uh, and insight, and and all wrapped up into a really nice uh, uh, single issue of Spawn. But the Neil Gaiman issue number nine, with the introduction of Angela is fantastic and I believe represents the best work of Todd's career. It also introdu- introduces Medieval Spawn, which becomes a, a point of contention as we go along here. But Angela is fantastic. It, it, Angela's introduction is fantastic. Todd's depiction of her is fantastic. I, I really believe this is the single best uh, issue. There's a Jim Lee uh, Angela pinup in here that Todd inked. It's it's fantastic. This, this is the best issue of Spawn ever published, uh, and 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 I think is is the the one hundred percent the the uh, the gold chip blue ribbon issue. I, I think it's just a a great romp introducing the 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 the, the uh, med- both medieval Spawn and this ancient war again. Uh, between between the spawn and 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 the the angelus uh i mean it g- gives the weaponry the i mean this this page where she where where angela is fighting medieval spawn before it cuts to 800 years later weaponry a multitude of weapons can be used to weaken and goad the creature needle bands stoners mutilators morning stars amongst others according to the hunter's own preferences However, the most important weapon, and that without which hunting spawn is not only foolish but pointless and virtually suicidal, is the lance. The hell spawns carapace sets up interference that will prevent the lance from activating. It needs to be close. It needs to be close in to the hell spawn before being activated. Once activated, it sets up a dimensional resonance that will lance the hell spawn from this level of existence like pus from a boil. Great, great episode, and it's exactly at that point that she lances the medieval spawn. We then cut to 800 years later, and, uh, and, and, uh, oh man, just an, an incredible, uh, juxtaposition with 
Angela going to see uh, another angelic person who sets her up on missions. Uh, Gabrielle and Angela identifies herself as a as a uh, freelancer, and then <clears throat> she says, "I'd heard a new hell spawn has surfaced. It's not exactly high on my list of priorities, but uh, I can't stop you from hunting. But I want this one quick and clean." Again, identifying her as a freelancer. So this sets up the the, the conflict with 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 Spawn and Angela in this current. Uh, this current period. And the one thing that I thought was really cool about the visual of Angela is that she wears like spawn logos. Like her, she, she wears her pelts. Uh, so goes without saying banger issue, great issue. My favorite issue of spawn, my favorite thing Todd ever did at image comics. So Todd had wanted to, uh, break out and, uh, And, and really give a different spotlight to Spawn. The, the Image Comics, and you're going to hear it written here. This is on page 41, the, the beginning of a chapter called Creating Angela. There's a Todd McFarlane history. There's a Creating Spawn history. These are the chapters leading up to this. This is page 41, Creating Angela. It says, Neil Gaiman's story, Angela, saw the introduction of new characters, notably Medieval Spawn, and two new Spawn foes in the form of angels, Angel, Angela and Gabriel. Or Gabrielle. Moore and Miller had elected not to create any new characters, and Dave Sim used his own. After the issues were finished and published, the four writers went to their went their own ways. Alan Moore remained with Image, eliciting to return to the superhero genre with a touching homage to the Marvel comics of the 60s uh, with his Image title, 1963. It then tells you uh, what happened to Dave Sim and what happened to Frank Miller. <clears throat> it says, Neil Gaiman was given an offer from McFarlane to continue with his Angela creation in the form of a three-issue miniseries, of which Neil accepted. Uh, this is now a direct quote on page 42 of the World versus Todd McFarlane from Neil Gaiman. And again, Neil, I'm not going to imitate him, but Neil has a very eloquent uh, style. And also, one of the reasons I don't talk about Neil as often as I do, if not at all, on this show is Neil... Even back then, in the 90s, with Sandman and with Death and with all of his incredible uh, successes, uh, he was described to me even back then as a poet. Neil is a poet, and the people who love him uh, love him more than anything. He is phenomenally successful. He, he has connected with a wide audience that worships his work. He is absolutely, incredibly talented. I wouldn't love Spawn number nine as much as I would without him. He later did some stuff for Marvel in the early 2000s uh, that, that I truly enjoyed. I enjoyed when he took over Miracle Man following Alan Moore. That may, that may have been that may have been my first encounter with him, actually. But at the end of the day, uh, I'm not a big Sandman, uh, a big uh, death. That, 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 that's just not my stuff. That's not my thing. But I absolutely recognize his brilliance and, and, and the success that he's had across all the platforms, uh, streaming, movies, uh, novels, and of course, comic books. But it is my my favorite work of Todd's happens to be as a result of his brilliant concepts and writings. So Neil was 100% on the, uh, Todd was 100% on the money when he went to him. And uh, <clears throat> he's very spoken, very, very, speaks very eloquently, very, very British, speaks very eloquently. Um, but I'm not going to imitate his voice. <clears throat> but he's not like Alan Moore, who's a little bit of a gruff. Eh? Oh, when I was doing the Watchmen. All right. <clears throat> so you, you may be prone to a couple Todd breakout imitations along the way, and I and I and I know that this audience <laughs> has told me uh, 
that they enjoy that. So if, if that happens, I'll, I'll try and give you advance warning. But here, here's a quote from Neil about being contacted from Todd to do Angela. I have given Todd more plot than he can use in one issue in terms of various philosophical, uh, philosophical backgrounds to Spawn's universe, said Neil Gaiman. There's an awful lot more there's an awful lot more there than I can be able to get to in one story, which has a working title of And Men Shall Call Her Angela because I've always wanted to write a story called And Men Shall Call Her Angela. Character ownership was not discussed at this time. Neil says, essentially, now, 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 now we are pivoting to Todd. <clears throat> and Todd says, essentially, the way that I'm working is something like this, McFarland said at the time. I divided the money up between the guy who writes, pencils, inks it, and the guy who created it. You know what you know what I mean? And the guy who created it gets basically the least amount of it. So if somebody decides to do an issue of Spawn, then I get a little piece just because of advertising and I laid the groundwork and I did the first 12 issues. But other than that, you know, this isn't about money. It's about keeping the legend going. Daniel Best then asked, why did Neil create characters for Spawn when Alan Moore, Frank Miller, and Dave Sim had not? Uh, Neil says, for one, it wasn't just the money. Neil now, we're back to quoting Neil. And, and again, Daniel... Uh, gives references for all these interviews between his blog and this book. Neil says, if memory serves, I had received more than $100,000 to write Black Orchid for DC Comics, which was a three-issue series in 1988. As a novelist, I received significantly more than that. As for a one-shot story, it was significantly more than I had received for one comic. Having said that, I had not written at that time, nor had I any interest in writing comics that would have sold in the numbers that Spawn was. And also, we were in the middle. Actually, that was, we weren't even in the middle. This was the high point. You can actually go back and look at the graphs. That was the high point of what was called the speculator boom. So the payment would have been very comparable to anything coming out as a number one or a foil embossed cover or anything. Comic books were selling 750,000 to 1.5 million copies during the time. These days, 100,000 is incredibly good. These days, 40,000 is really good. All a quote from Neil Gaiman. Part of the reason was down to Todd McFarlane's persistence. Once he realized what he wanted, he'd stop at nothing to get it. In this 2002 deposition, so this is a legal deposition, 2002, Neil Gaiman gave an incredible insight into how Neil, how Todd McFarlane was operating in 1993. Before I got the work, before I agreed to it, again, this is Neil Gaiman directly speaking, before I got the work, before I agreed to it, there were several phone calls from Todd promising things and trying to persuade me to do it. From my perspective, there were a number of downsides to working with Todd and to working with Image Comics. They were, despite their obvious commercial success, the industry laughing stock at the time, which meant that by working with them, by putting Mr. McFarlane in that position where he could use as his sole advertisement for Spawn Number 9 a black page with the word Neil Gaiman written on it, that was something that was lending him cachet, and I had to decide whether or not I was willing to do that. So Todd was very much courting me. He was very wise. He was, he very wisely did not mention money at the time. What he talked to me about was showing unity with creators, sticking it to the big companies, complete creative freedom, not signing anything away and just being, uh, and just being, and also just pointing out that it would shake people up. On the second phone call, when I was still wavering, he also said, okay, you know, I have Alan Moore, I have Dave Sim and I have Frank Miller. They're all saying, yes, come on, it's the big four. You can't be left out. Those were the things that he used to persuade me, Neil says. I remember him offering complete creative freedom. The phrase he used was, you can have 22 pages of Spawn reading the newspaper for all I care. You can make up his past. You can do whatever you like. You have complete creative freedom. And I said, yes, in the end. 
So I want to go to you because it is covered in here. When when Neil says that we were the laughing stock at the time, you can't open that door uh, up without um, without me kind of walking through and 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 mentioning this certain aspect, which has several of the image guys commenting on that what I'm going to call a myth during that period. When speaking directly about the creation of Image Comics, Daniel Best uh, activates that portion earlier in, in an earlier chapter called Creating Spawn and the Launch of Image Comics. And on page 31, he says, the image creators met with mixed reactions to their respective books. He says, the art uh, was of the era, flashy, loud, and big. It either left people cold or invigorated. Most people felt the company was a gimmick and would not last without the uh, without the kind of support Marvel and DC could provide. Then there's a quote from Neil Gaiman here on page 32. So even prior to creating Angela section, but I, I figured with um, with Neil kind of saying that that we were a joke, and 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 that he had to consider. Because I mean, let's be honest. That quote by Neil that I just read about him kind of considering the cachet that he would provide with his name. It's kind of pompous. And, and I'm not. I'm gonna tell you. I only talked to Neil once. Uh, in an elevator in San Diego, uh, many floors down in the Marriott, I, 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 would, I would tell you that while he seems to be a very nice guy, and we all have our egos, I have an ego, sometimes kind of comes off as pompous. That, that statement is absolutely pompous. Here he's, he engages in being pompous once again when he says, when Image started, Neil Gaiman recalls, they were getting a lot of, um, they were getting a lot of stick from fans. Maybe that means shit, stick. I'm going to say they were getting a lot of, he says stick from fans and from the comic press for being illiterate garbage, which is probably a polite way of putting the things they were saying about their comics. So uh, then Daniel Best, so that's a quote from Neil Gaiman, and then Neil Daniel jumps down and says, not that accusations of poor writing bothered anyone at Image. Indeed, they put such claims down to one thing, jealousy. I don't care what anyone said it was, McFarland says, <clears throat> this calls on a Todd. But, but uh, I don't care what anybody said it was. It was pure jealousy. I know they didn't think we could draw. I know they didn't think we could write. I know they didn't think we could uh, tie our own shoes. But they'd have taken our comic books that sold a million in a heartbeat. Uh, I've heard that said by Todd. It deserved to be said like Todd. That's exactly how he sounds when he says it. So he says it was pure jealousy. Mark Silvestri Weighs in. It says, Mark Silvestri agreed it was jealousy, pure and simple. There were some very outspoken critics, and the bright green color of their skin became very apparent to everyone. Sorry if they took it the wrong way, but we made fun of them on a daily basis, and a lot of people who weren't even involved with Image made fun of our comics. We had a few good laughs about them, but we never took them seriously. Then it talks about how great we all sold, our millions <clears throat> of, uh, of of sales, and, uh, you know, Bottom line, I want to wanted to go back because it's addressed earlier and say this stuff that 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 <clears throat> when when Neil says I'm giving them cachet, this 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 particular uh, there was something that, about lending them cachet that I had to decide whether or not I was willing to do that. Oh my God, stop taking yourself so seriously. Literally, Alan Moore was the bigger, more formative, more uh, 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 substantive name in in comics. Okay, and uh, and and. I think I think Neil a little 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 full of himself with with this quote, but also if this is from a deposition, he's pissed off, uh, and, and he's really trying to diminish uh, what Todd had at the time and how much he brought to it. So I get that it's a deposition quote, and he's he's a little you know he's a little full of himself during this time. Again, he 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 talks about the second phone call where Todd says, "I need the big four. 
He says money was not discussed. The the point that money was discussed was after the first check came in with a little note from one of Todd's workers uh, after we had done some brainstorming. I had brainstormed. I had said, here's this idea. Here, here is an idea. And I sent it off to them. That's exactly how it's written. I said, here's an idea. Here is an idea. And I sent it off to them. I got a check. And the next time that Todd phoned, I said, hey, by the way, you sent me a check, but you haven't sent me a contract. So this is where things are starting to get serious. Todd said, we don't send contracts. We treat you better, you know? It's not, it's just, that's not how we do business. We don't do contracts, but we will treat you, he said. But I will tell you what, I will treat you better than DC ever would with their contracts. This is Neil recounting Todd. And that was the sum total of it. And I thought, okay. So I sent it to my literary agent, Marilee Heifetz. Marilee Heifetz received this check he says, uh, because <clears throat> she needed her share of the money, her 10%. She phoned me up and said, where in the contract, where is the contract that goes with this pay- payment, Neil? And Neil said, there is no contract to his agent. Todd has said he is going to treat me better than anybody would with an actual contract. And she says, do you trust him? And I said, yes, he seems to be a very good guy. And on the phone, he is not asking me to sign anything away. So obviously I'm trusting him. And that was where we got up to the point that it, that that there had been an entire conversation about money. This is what Todd told me at the time. He said the orders for Spawn 6 and 7 were 600,000 copies. And with the Alan Moore issue, they went up to 1.2 million copies. Now, let me tell you, this is the highest selling book. What did I just say about Alan Moore? Alan Moore was the big name. The idea that the cachet, okay, I mean, a little, again, just, just, I, I love to point this out. This is opinion. This is Rob's opinion. <laughs> this is Rob's observations. This is what you're getting. Alan's sold the best, 1.2 million, hence reinforcing that Alan was the biggest name to lend his quote unquote cachet. He says, for my issue, they were about a million. So they doubled as a result of this gimmick that Todd was doing. For Dave Sims' issue, it came in at 800,000 and Frank's was up there also at a million. He decided uh, to just say, I'm giving you all $100,000. And this was after the orders had started coming in and he saw what was actually happening. And he said, I'm just going to give you $100,000 rather than do sums. So you have each got a round number and you can do with it what you will. And I did the sums in my head. I figured 1 million copies, a buck 95, uh, a book. He says $100,000 seemed comparable to the kind of money that I would get from DC Comics if I decided to write a number one for them at that point. And yeah, so I left it about there. I had recently done about the same time. I did a, a Sandman number 50, our 50th anniversary edition, which came out with a special cover, extra length issue. And that at the time had sold over a quarter of a million copies. Now here, here's, let's remember, he said special cover. That's a special gimmick cover on that issue of Sandman 50. Uh, that that, that I'm, I'm, I'm inserting that fact into this statement so that we can come back to it. He says, so, you know, we were looking at uh, $30,000, $40,000 royalty check on that Sandman uh, number 50. So this was definitely comparable in terms of money. Again, this is directly from Neil, Neil Gaiman in, in, in terms of the money and, and his discussions and the payout for his issue of Spawn number nine. Then Daniel Best writes, if it wasn't for the money and certainly not for the fame, as Gaiman was, Neil Gaiman was one of the big four that McFarlane spoke about, why did Gaiman's work differ in content so much from the other three? Uh, then he goes on to say that Frank Miller, Alan Moore, and Dave Sim had all been around the block. He talks about Frank creating Electra and losing control of it, that Alan had lost control of Watchmen, and that he he surmises, Daniel Best 
opinion here is that Neil was not used to losing characters uh, and that he was a little, uh, it, it says right here, on page 46, Neil Gaiman wasn't as jaded as his peers and was genuinely interested in the Spawn universe. For him, the offer wasn't just another pile of money for a script. It was an opportunity to leave a mark on a book that would that he would probably never work on again. Back to that 2002 uh, deposition, Neil says, I was the writer of a comic named Sandman, which in 1992 was the single most acclaimed ongoing series. <laughs> Sorry. Acclaimed series of comics. Uh, again, if you've ever listened to this show and you think I come across as pomp- pompous, just listen to some of these. Um, <laughs> again, this is a quote from a deposition. This was said, to, you know, during litigation. I was the writer of a comic named Sandman, which in 1992 was the single most acclaimed ongoing series of comics, probably, that there has ever been in terms of literary re- rewards received and respect in the industry and personal awards that were coming in for the comic and for the writing thereof whoa i'm gonna reread this i was the writer of a comic named sandman which in 1992 was the single most acclaimed ongoing series of comics probably that there has ever been in terms of literary rewards received and respect in the industry and personal awards that were coming in for the comic and for the writing thereof wow wow i'm I'm stepping away from the mic so i don't blow your ears away wow so neil neil is is Fairly proud of what Neil accomplishes in the same way that we all are. You've heard me talk about my own sales and my own accomplishments. So again, just so you know, it's it's that the neighborhood is full of of of, of ego. So uh, Sandman slowly worked. This is again Neil's. I, I, I'm I'm no longer g- giving you the the, the British. Uh, Accent. This I'm going to continue his statement. He says Sandman slowly worked its way up from the first issue through the last issue from on a league, uh, on on a league table of one to 500 being all comic books published that month we started probably in the low 90s and slowly over the next seven years worked our way up to more or less the number one comic since that time sandman has been collected in trade paperbacks and has gone on to continue to sell millions of trade paperbacks he said now again a quote from neil todd phoned me up and asked me if i would consider writing an issue of spawn and and all as far as i know the image people they were all artists he said what he wanted to do was go to the four best, biggest, and most important writers in comics and get a guest issue written by each of them to show people that an image comic could be well written. <laughs> and, and and to show his, I don't think he used the word humility. It's not a word that Todd would use, but that was what was being communicated, that, hey, I can learn that kind of thing. Todd was saying he wanted to show, again, I was in those meetings at those tables sitting across from Todd at an at a partner's meeting of which we had many more in the early days from 92 to 94, a lot more of us getting together, going to Phoenix, going to Anaheim, going to San Diego. We'd get out, we, we, we'd come together, we'd hang out, we'd share who we were talking to, the different um, players that we were you know, asking to come on board, uh, fresh new talent that we were getting. Uh, it was a very exciting time and Todd was saying, I'm going to get the best writers to write Spawn so that I can boast that Image Comics has the best writers because he Todd was really hung up on the fact, even though I said in that quote earlier that he said they didn't think we could draw, they didn't think we could write, they didn't think we'd tie our shoes together. He really wanted to show like, we look, I got great writers. So continuing now, back to the quotes, directly from Neil's uh, 2002 deposition. Uh, I also think he, he considered it the ultimate marketing gimmick to have good writing. He said at one point to me during this that Liefeld and company and company 
that means the rest of image we're putting foil embossed stamped covers on things and rolling out new number ones in order to get the numbers and he had four issues of good writers and this was his gimmick hey Interesting that this last San Diego, uh, there was a bunch of gold embossed spoil spawn logo covers. And I think Todd has now, as we've, there's an ish, there's an episode earlier this year where I do an interview with Todd where he, and I quote, says, gimmicks and variants alienate fans. They only serve to alienate the reader and the fan. And, 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 and I think we can really say with all on, in all honesty now, Todd feels much differently because when he's saying, because come on, guys, we're having fun with this. We're having a lot of fun with this. Uh, Liefeld and company were using gimmicks. Well, I, I think that I, I could have gotten all manner of gold-foiled gimmicky covers from Mr. McFarlane at the 2023 uh, comic convention. So I guess uh, the winds of change have blown through the McFarlane Enterprise, and now he, he feels differently about this, especially when the writer that you, you, you hired turned around and sued your ass off one and 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 removed what he created from Spawn into his own possession and sold it to Marvel. So yeah, I'm I'm getting a little little ahead of myself here. I continue with this Neil quote. I asked Todd to explain to me, and he said Spawn was a CIA oper operative. He's dead. He gets killed. He goes to hell. And the devil, who at that point he didn't have a name for, who event who actually Alan Moore would later name Malabogia, has sent him back to Earth with a limited power thing, and he's trying to be, he is training to be in the army of hell. Uh, I said to Todd, okay, well, who are you fighting? Who is Spawn fighting? Again, this is directly a quote from Todd, from an, uh, from Neil, from an, from an interview. I said to Todd, and, and who is he fighting? And Todd says, I don't know. <laughs> and I thought about it a little, and I thought, this wasn't talking to Todd, this was on my own, Neil says. I thought, well, you don't, have an army to fight librarians. So if you're putting together an army of hell, one assumes that there is at some point an army to fight the army of hell, which would be the army of heaven. And if you have an army, heaven's army could be worse. I thought, cool, this would give me an angle. I thought, well, if there is any reason, I, and I thought, well, is there any reason that the angels can't be female? They were up to that point I think Todd sent me three or four issues of Spawn at that point. Whatever was being published, there were no women whatsoever in Spawn except for Spawn's ex-wife that I can remember. I thought, well, let's create a fun female character who is a kick-ass angel. And I thought Todd didn't have a lot in terms of Spawn background story at this point. He had this situation with the CIA, with Spawn dying, going to hell, coming back. He's a super he's a superpowered dead thing whose life has moved on. So he had that scenario. But from talking to him, it became apparent he didn't have anywhere that he was going with it, and he didn't have much in the way of background. So I thought it would be a good thing for me to give him a background and do the kinds of thing, uh, stuff for him that I would do in an issue of Sandman, where I will, you know, set up, toss out a dozen things, knowing that in two years' time, or a year's time, or six years' time, or whatever, you may need those things. Okay, so he is laying the basis for uh, expanding the saga, and let me tell you, that is one hundred percent why I loved. It, let's be honest, and you did too. You love Spawn number nine because of Angela and the Angelus and and medieval Spawn and, and Gabrielle handing out this assignment. It expanded. Suddenly, Spawn felt bigger than it had ever felt. And Neil is saying right here, this is what I did to him, just like I do in an issue of Sandman. Again, re re repeating it. I will set up, you know, comma, you will toss out a dozen things knowing that in two years time, comma, or a year's time, comma, or six years time or whatever, you may need them. In short, Neil Gaiman hadn't been ripped off, either knowingly or unknowingly, enough to hold back at this stage in his career. 
which is not to say that Neil Gaiman was naive. He's far from it. So again, continuing with Daniel Best's uh, recollection of how the groundwork was laid, because if we don't understand the conversations that happened between Todd and Neil, with what Neil believed he was getting into, which again, Todd, Todd says, trust me, I'm going to treat you better than DC. I'm, I'm giving you this $100,000. I'm giving everyone $100,000. And I think what Daniel Best is leading up to here is that, again, other than a name with Malboja, and you haven't lived until you've heard Todd say, Mal, Malboja, Mal, Malboja. Um, that, that's, that's a treat. Uh, is uh, up, at the, up until that point, the other three writers did uh, the other three writers did not contribute so substantially, substantively to the the, the spawn mythos. Uh, Daniel writes on page forty eight of his book, hiring Neil Gaiman as writer for one issue of Spawn would eventually come back to haunt Todd as the second worst decision he made on Spawn. As Neil Gaiman later sued Todd. Uh, for the characters that he, Gaiman, created, resulting in the Miracle Man trial, which would see McFarlane lose even more than just money. McFarlane was happy with Gaiman's effort. Number nine is a good story, a good spawn story, so to speak. There's a bit of a flashback that shows there's been spawns in the past, but then it comes back to the present day, and our spawn, the one that was in the first seven issues, gets in a fight and does a comic book thing and whatever. That's, that's, just reading this, that's one, that, that's the one Neil Gaiman's writing. And then for Neil, that's something that he's not really used to writing, and so it gives him a chance to try something new and different himself. I think he's referring to what he calls the comic book thing. But did McFarlane deliberately set out to steal from or rip off Neil Gaiman? Simply put, no, not from the beginning. McFarlane believed in what he, this is again opinion by Daniel Best, and Image Comics were doing. Image and McFarlane both were righteous and will protect and nurture those characters who came over to them. There would be better, uh, there would be better for them in the long run they would be better for them in the long run than Marvel or DC comics ever could be. Speaking to the creators that they asked to participate. That's what Daniel Best is saying. Again, reiterating Todd's, I'll treat you better. Uh, Todd says, what's going to allow us to compete in the long run, and I believe this to my dying day, is the talent base that we have. McFarlane told the authors of Comic Book Rebels, because we're pro-creator. Now, that doesn't mean we can't each try and create our own universal character like Mickey Mouse, but what's going to get Image in the same ballgame is not that we have a huge corporate backing or a firm of 45 lawyers. We don't have any of that, but you know what I think we're going to have in the long run? The most talent. And you know what? The only way we're going to keep attracting the top talent on a basic level, there are only two things that really motivate most creative people. The, a, the bill's getting paid. B, creative freedom. Uh, Todd... Uh, Engaged with an artist named Steve Bissett. Stephen Bissett was seminal in his work alongside Alan Moore, transforming the Swamp Thing book in the mid eighties, nineteen eighty four, nineteen eighty five. Just, just that put Alan Moore on the map, setting the stage for everything that would follow at DC with Watchmen. His Miracle Man, his, his Marvel Man stuff was great. It is my favorite Alan Moore stuff. Is the Miracle Man, Marvel Man stuff that he did it is so brilliant, uh, just amazing, astounding work. But the Swamp Thing. Uh, an anatomy lesson, which was the big seminal story that changed everything for Swamp Thing and changed him from just a character of the swamp to understanding that he had this tie to this mystical uh, power called the green, which affected all uh, nature and flora and fauna, and that, that, that Swamp Thing was kind of like a representative, a guardian of this. And Stephen Bissett and John Tottleman were the artists that did groundbreaking, seminal, illustrative work with Alan Moore during this time. Stephen uh, was contacted by Todd. Uh, it says, uh, Daniel Best says, as Todd's empire grew, he appeared to forget about the basics of what he once preached, was about, which is referring to creator, creator freedom. 
He says this extended to the way that he worked and engaged with people. Seemingly gone was the friendly, inclusive Todd McFarlane, instead replaced by something very strange. Uh, Stephen Bissett says that he was contacted at one point while he was drawing 1963 with Alan Moore and that Todd had wanted him to consider working in some capacity with him on a Spawn-related horror concept. He, he said that Todd's conversations were all over the, pl- were all over the place, but in per- pursuit of one, in, uh, exactly what he wanted me to be doing, and two, exactly what the deal was, business-wise. Then Stephen Bissett says, and I quote, my memory is that one was an idea that he had for a character that was in existence, a gorilla, an oversized simian with a transplanted human brain, and two, it was vague at best. Todd really didn't want to nail down what he was being offered or what the deal for me would be. At one point, he said, look, if we do something together and I'm happy, I'm going to take care of you, Todd says to Stephen Bissett. If you're in my way, I'll flatten you like a steamroller. I'm like an express train and nothing is going to hold me back. That is Stephen Bissett quoting what Todd McFarlane said to him. Stephen Bissett says, I have to say it wasn't an, it wasn't an appealing proposition. He says, especially after my 1963 experience in which Jim Valentino, another uh, image founder, partner, uh, the creator of Shadowhawk and so many others, in, uh, especially given my 1963 experience in which Jim Valentino was our image godfather and had kept everything simple and on the up and up and relatively uh, with few speed bumps. So uh, he says, I had no idea what Todd expected of me. And after a final call where I really pressed politely for a clear definition of what he wanted and what it paid and what the contract would entail, Todd stopped calling me. He moved on elsewhere and moved to someone else. Again, just parts of a book that should pique your interest. Again, I, I, I steered clear of sharing this, uh, sh- sharing this entire story with you. But the one thing that so many of you, you incredible amazing fan base have told me that you have gotten smarter listening to this show because I have shared with you so many interviews that you would not have from Comics Journal in 1981 or 1984 or Amazing Heroes or or, or my own personal interactions, my memos, my deals, my faxes with Marvel during the Heroes Reborn period, uh, Fighting American, uh, just, just sharing with you guys stuff that has not been well chronicled, has not been well uh, cataloged. Well, this is a huge part of what happened in the history of comic books with these two. I can't remember a time where two comic creators engaged in a lawsuit such as this that had the ramifications that this had. But here we are discussing it, sharing it, and and uh, and, and laying it out because it happened. It absolutely happened, and you should know about it, and you should learn from it, and you should apply all the lessons that are applied from this incredibly well-researched book uh, to, to whatever you're doing going forward in your knowledge of the creators that you like, or, or, or creators that are coming on the scene, or yourself as a creator in, in, in how you interact with other creators. As far as what comes next with Todd and Neil Gaiman, as much as I did not want to include the Tony Twist trial uh, that Todd was involved with, with, with a hockey player that is um, most easily summed up by telling you that this hockey player, Tony Twist, Todd used his name and he told all of us, because Todd was huge into hockey. Todd was huge into hockey. So he told all of us that he was using this guy's name. Uh, that that Tony Twist was the name of a mobster. And here's Tony Twist, uh, the, the, the hockey player's uh, feeling towards the way he was portrayed in this comic, even though, e- even though that the the uh, the portrayal of, of of him was ultimately completely that th- there was a 
the, the court dismissed the defamation count. There was a defamation aspect to Tony Twist's lawsuit against Todd for the use of his name on this, on this mobster named Tony Twist. But here is uh, how Tony Twist believed, how he perceived his, his, his portrayal in the Spawn comic. Uh, Tony Twist clearly felt that the character of Tony Twist, uh, Anthony, Twist, Anthony uh, Twistelli, the full name that Todd used in the comic, not only was the character named after him, it was all based upon him. As far as Tony Twist was concerned, he was Antonio Twistelli, and anything that Twistelli did reflected poor upon him as an actual person. None of the journal- journalists covering the trial between Todd and Twist thought to ask Twist just what his reputation was. He was a an enforcer, and in the world of hockey, of course, you're, you're the guy that follows like one of the leading scores i mean gretzky had his wayne gretzky had his fair share of enforcers twist was an enforcer a person known to fight others during a hockey game concentrating on the blows more than the game itself he may have lost an endorsement or two but it's hard to see what kind of endorsement can be offered to a goon in quotes tony twist i'm reading this all out of um daniel best book what can be offered a goon in quotes that would appeal to young children as if to reinforce Twist's status as an as an enforcer, the bulk of the newspapers covering the trial showed only two covering the trial showed only two types of photos when reporting on the trial. One was a headshot of Twist grinning and usually placed next to the image of the Spawn Twist, which showed that the two looked nothing alike. The second type of photo and the most popular usually fo- showed Twist bashing an opponent in the head. This continued from the first trial through the last trial because this was litigated and appealed and. Uh, it's exactly what, like what I did on the ice, a war, a battle. It hasn't been a drain on me, Tony Twist said. If it's an emotional drain to go to battle, don't do it because you're probably not cut out for the job. Uh, the, the judgment against Todd, absent the defamation court, uh, absent the defamation count, uh, was devastating. It says, and I read, McFarlane lost the first lawsuit against Twist. He lost the, he lost the court trial. The outcome was devastating for McFarlane. While the trial court dismissed the defamation count, uh, they sustained Tony Twist's misappropriation of his name claim, and Todd was ordered to pay Tony Twist $24,500,000 in damages, not including Tony Twist's costs. Outside the court, Twist repeatedly repeated the claim that he learned about the comic book via his mother. And this is a quote from Tony Twist. My mom said, son, I can't believe you lent your name to this guy. I had no idea what she was talking about, so I checked it out. In one part of the HBO show, I'm in in pink thong underwear, smoking a cigar, ordering the kidnapping of a child, while two women are naked on the couch making love to each other. I obviously didn't want any part of that. Even if I was a good guy in the comic, I wouldn't have participated. You've got kids being kidnapped. You've got nudity. You've got police raping women. It is nothing that I want to be affiliated affiliated with. That is a full quote. From Tony Twist. The reason I'm telling you about this is the twenty-four million five hundred thousand judgment factors into what's about to happen with Neil Gaiman. Okay, the way that they came up with that number, also Daniel Best says that the jury came to the figure as it represented less than twenty percent of McFarland's combined gross earnings from Spawn, including comics, toys, books, the animated series, the feature film across a decade. They estimated that he had grossed $120 million over 10 years from 1992 to 2002, and that's where they came up with that number. Now, Todd comments on it, and Todd's comments to a newspaper said, uh, 
We've got the course going. We've got this going to the appellate court right now. Hurt feelings are not a, are not a crime, Todd said. They are not able to bring one iota of evidence other than someone had hurt feelings. That is not a crime. No crime occurred. The question is, why do you get a $24 million lawsuit against you? We're at the, we are at the lowest level of the courts. You'll be surprised at how emotions play into it when you've got a jury that they pick off the streets that aren't lawyers. I don't even blame them. They're laymen. They're not lawyers. They're not listening for keywords. Uh, where the judges and lawyers are listening for keywords, when they say these keywords, the lawyers say, oh, that's a good one, or oh, that's a bad one. Whereas these laymen say they made his mom cry, or they made him kick his own dog. And then this guy says, well, if I don't even own my own name, well, well, then what do I own? Well, you do own your name. It's just that you're not the only one with the same name. There may be a thousand people with the same name as you. Again, I am quoting Todd McFarlane directly. In the case of coming up with character names, it's sort of an ongoing thing in literature. Various names sometimes cross paths with other people's names, but it's not that person. It's taken a lot of time and money to get to this point, and we're in the driver's seat now. The jury felt sympathetic, but the judge threw everything out, said it was a farce. Now it is up to the federal appellate courts to argue it all over again. So, Daniel Best writes, with that in mind, it came as no surprise that Todd McFarlane was able to drop $3 million on a baseball knocked out of the park by Mark McGuire so easily, along with other home run baseballs and Madonna outfits. As an aside, the reasons for McFarland buying the baseballs wasn't just due to a love of the game. He had business on his mind. The McGuire ball bought me some meetings. People tend to equate money with success. Hey, that guy spent $3 billion, three, Hey, that guy spent $3 million for a baseball. Bring him in. It's like buying into a poker table, but then it's on you once you do when you're at the table. Anyway, I could have spent that money on a couple of Super Bowl commercials, but do you think anyone would be th- talking about those years later? That is a quote from Todd. Larry Martyr, publisher of Image Comics, is on the record stating that he believes it was McFarland's purchasing of the baseballs that became a catalyst for Neil Gaiman to sue Todd. In 1999, Neil said that he was angry because of Todd's purchase of the Mark McGuire baseball and that none of this has been resolved between McFarland and Ga- Gaiman. I believe that I told him, you know, that at this point, that's not my business, and there was nothing more that I could do. That is a quote from Larry Martyr. What followed is Neil Gaiman sued Todd McFarlane, and that will be covered more at length in part two of Neil Gaiman versus Todd McFarlane, The Trials of Todd McFarlane, taken from this excellent book, The World versus Todd McFarlane by Daniel Best. Daniel, I hope you have copies of this book uh, ready, ready to ship. I think people are going to be interested in it. All of this, these, all of these uh, interviews, all, by the way, that I give you, they're, as I told you, they are, uh, they are notated, and 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 they tell you exactly where each quote came from. Uh, f- f- that, that, I mean, he really did some absolute incredible research. The. Uh, in, in, in the, the the quote that I just read to you from Larry Martyr, he uh, comes from, uh, the quote from Todd comes from The Devil You Know, an interview with Todd McFarlane, I believe, which is a video. The quote from Tony Twist comes from the St. Louis Dispatch and the Edmonton Journal. Uh, the others come from Larry Martyr's de- deposition, June 19, 2002. Again, he is reading these court documents. He is sharing them, them with you. I am now sharing them with you. And I am skipping all manner of, uh, of chapters so that you can actually get this book 
and check it out yourself. We will be back with so much more in part two of this. This was our first ever weekend drop, special weekend drop of Rob's Relations. You guys have asked for more. I am giving you more. Uh, the format of this is going to be slightly different. I'm not going to go into all my uh, extra uh, uh, information that I do at the end. There won't be any reviews on these weekend drops. I would just like to tell you that I have Deadpool Batter Blood number one, two, three, and four in your local comic stores right now. You should go to those comic stores. You should ask for them. They are extremely entertaining. I am super proud of the work that I've done with these characters uh, that I've created. Deadpool, Cable, all, all new characters are, are featured in this. Thumper, uh, the 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 core, uh, a new character named Slay. There's Arcada. There's Kill. Uh, there's Killville. It, it's a it's a blast. It's got Wolverine. It's got Venom. It's got Venompool. So many other characters along for the ride. I hope very much. Um, Shatterstorm. What am I talking about? Shatterstorm. I hope very much that you can come come along for the ride and enjoy uh, Deadpool Batter Blood issue five, which wraps it all up. Will be out October eighteenth. So it's coming down the bend here. And then I've got Deadpool Seven Slaughters coming out in November. So please be on the lookout for my work on Twitter. I am at Robert Liefeld. On Instagram, I am at Rob Liefeld. On Facebook, I have a group called. Rob Liefeld, Marvel Extreme and Beyond. I would love for you to be a part of it. Facebook group, Rob Liefeld, Marvel Extreme and Beyond. Look for it. Uh, when you click in for the membership, either myself or a guy named Terry Sala will click you through. Thank you for joining on this special weekend drop. Look forward to the second part, which will be coming up next. Uh, the next episode will be the second part of, of uh, Neil Gaiman versus Todd McFarlane, straight from the pages of Daniel Best, The World versus Todd McFarlane. I hope you look out for it. Thank you for spending your weekend with me on this special weekend drop. Uh, take care of yourself, stay out of trouble, and know that we will absolutely, most certainly, inevitably talk again real soon.